Good afternoon, everybody, uh, and uh, welcome to uh, this uh, Medical Humanities Seminar. So, our speaker today is uh, Joanna McHugh Power, who holds a PhD in Experimental Psychology from Trinity College here. Since it was awarded in 2010, she has completed three postdoctoral fellowships and currently holds a Leadership in Aging Research Fellowship awarded by the Centre for Aging Research and Development in Ireland. Uh, she's also recently completed an Irish Research Council New Foundations project exploring loneliness in older adults using qualitative methodologies. Her research explores the causal mechanisms contributing to cognitive decline in later life, focusing on the impact of social factors, and she has many peer-reviewed publications in this field. To this end, she uses data sets from the Irish Longitudinal Study on Aging, Tilda, here in Trinity, and the Northern Irish Cohort Longitudinal Study on Aging, Nicola as well as smaller data sets within the Neil Group at the Institute of Neuroscience here at Trinity College. Dr. McHugh currently lectures in psychology at, psychology at NCI, teaching biological, cognitive and behavioural psychology. She's going to speak to us today about loneliness in older Irish adults. As Barry says, my background is in psychology, and I'm going to be talking today a little bit, first off, about what I mean by loneliness, and secondly, then I'm going to introduce some recent qualitative explorations that we've done um, in an older Irish sample. Um, first off, I just want to clarify what my message is with this talk. So first off, first part of this message is, if you read the headlines, you'll see that loneliness is being described as a killer. Okay, It's being described as the biggest health epidemic, biggest pub public health epidemic since obesity, since smoking. It's being catched in these terms. And I think that if we're willing to put some um, strength behind those words, if we're willing to take that as given and design incredibly expensive interventions based on that, we have to find out exactly what we're dealing with and make sure that on the observational and the experimental literature side of things that we're actually being consistent about what loneliness is and where it appears. So that's my aim for today is first off talk a little bit about how we're defining loneliness, how we're measuring loneliness which is a natural kind of consequence of its definition. Secondly, what are the implications for the um, variations in, in definition of loneliness for how we're using it currently, how we're approaching it in epidemiology and how we're approaching it in clinical practice. And thirdly, I want to suggest some ways forward, including then I'm going to present some qualitative data um, that, we've, that we've analysed uh, last year. And I want to stop and just say why I think this is important. First off, um, the first point that I want to make is that obviously loneliness has been linked, and I'll go into a bit more detail about this in a bit, it has been linked to really terrible health outcomes, including mortality, early mortality risk, um, dementia outcomes, and cognitive decline. But also, apart from that, it's a painful experience in and of itself. If you talk to somebody, we've interviewed people who um, you know, self-reported um, their, their loneliness, and they do talk about it as a, an acute, painful experience. And while we're investigating this phenomenon within older adults, we're certainly not saying that this is the population that you know, we see most loneliness in. In fact, there seems to be two kind of hotspots um, in the life trajectory for experiencing loneliness. Um, around sort of early adulthood, what's now being called emerging adulthood, and then again um, at later life. But we're not saying that loneliness is necessarily linked to age, but just that there are certain events that happen at these two ages that seem to precipitate loneliness. A lot of changes um, in the environment, mostly. So I want to start off by trying to define loneliness. And because I'm among humanities here, I wanted to bring Sartre with me. Um, so here's Sartre, and in his novel Nausea, he talks about loneliness. The, the protagonist for Countdown is talking about how he experiences it. And he says, I'm alone in the midst of these happy, reasonable voices. 
So, you know, I'm sure Sarah wasn't intending to do so at the time, but he's um, foreseeing a big um, area of research within loneliness uh, in psychology, which is the fact that we can be lonely among people and that loneliness is different to social isolation. That we might see that somebody is socially isolated if they don't have an awful lot of people around them, but they may not be experiencing loneliness themselves. Conversely, somebody may be very well connected socially, have a lot of people around them, and still be experiencing loneliness. And that's one way of looking at loneliness, that it's something that is subjective, it's something that's within ourselves and not necessarily linked to what's going on around us. But when we look at the literature, we can actually see there's an awful lot of divergent definitions of loneliness going on. So the most common one within psychology is the cognitive discrepancy approach. And this is described by Pavel and Perlman in the 80s, and it's still the one that you see most commonly at the start of any literature review about loneliness. You'll see that it's a discrepancy between what the person wants and what the person has in terms of their social connection. So that somebody has a very low level of social connectedness, for instance, and wants a much higher one. However, there are many other definitions out there too. So one is the quality approach. And that's saying it's not really about quantitative, uh, quantifiable discrepancy as such. It's just about the quality of those links that exist, those relationships that exist. A third approach um, that's been advocated by Professor Brian Lawler, Professor of Old Age Psychiatry here in Trinity College in Dublin, is the pathology approach. And, and Professor Lawler believes that um, in some cases, loneliness is not a functional response. In some, some cases, loneliness actually becomes a dysfunctional response. And I'll talk about functional and dysfunctional responses in a bit. But he's trying to make the case here that in some cases, loneliness could actually represent a psychological disorder. So a pattern of responses, either psychologically, cognitively, emotionally, or behaviorally, things that people are doing, thinking, and feeling that are not any longer going to lead them to any positive result, that are actually just going to make them worse and worse. Another approach is the isolation approach. Um, one of the giants in our field in, in social neuroscience is a guy called John Kajopo at the University of Chicago. And Dr. Jogo has written extensively about this. He's written a very good lay um, it, uh, book about loneliness as well that's really wonderfully written, describes all of his research in a good amount of detail. And he likens loneliness to social isolation. So despite that he has done all of this research into loneliness, he still seems to see it as something that's quite simple, that's perceived social isolation, okay, the feeling of being alone, um, which is quite different to what we're seeing in our research, but also in some other approaches. Sociologists have described loneliness as actually being a loss of connection to the outside culture. So conversely to the dysfunctional approach um, to loneliness that, that Brian Lawler is taking, the pathology approach, John Job himself also advocates a functional um, perspective on loneliness. And he says that loneliness is actually a mechanism that brings us back into the fold. If you're talking about it in evolutionary terms, individuals who strayed from the herd, so to speak, would have been at more risk of um, you know, being preyed on. So, the feeling that we get from straying from the herd is actually an evolutionary mechanism to bring us back into the herd. Okay, so that's what John Kachopo is saying. And he says that in terms of the neuroscience of it, loneliness is piggybacking on, on neural circuitry that subserves pain mechanisms. So the thalamic circuitry in the brain, which activates when we experience physical pain, we also see activates when we experience social rejection, which is likened to loneliness in some of these studies. Okay, so I'm trying to, as well, you can see here that it's likened to loneliness. A lot of publications in this field will have loneliness as the headline, but when you read a little bit further, you find out that it's actually about 
social rejection, social isolation, social support, all of these different things. So the problem of definition in this field is really big. It's possible that we're actually talking about a number of different things. Loneliness has been described as a state, so a transient situation, this transient feeling that we have when we're not connected to other people, or indeed a trait. So it could be the case that some people are just more disposed to feeling lonely and it's part of their personality. And you could say about somebody they're very loneliness prone, perhaps. There are also different types of loneliness that have been postulated. So um, Robert Weiss, who's another kind of eminent figure in this in this research, describes the difference between social loneliness, which is the you know the absence or loss of friends or felt social network, and emotional loneliness, which is the feeling that we get if we're missing a significant other, um, you know, one kind of person confidant in our lives. So from all of this research, we can say, okay, well, there is a problem with definition here. It's being defined in lots of different ways. One of the most important things that we need to define is whether we're talking about a single universal construct that all researchers, lay people, everybody alike knows what they're talking about when they talk about loneliness, that we're all speaking the same language. Or what's probably more likely is that we're using loneliness as an umbrella term, and it actually covers lots of different distinct things. So state and trait, uh, chronic and acute, um, and social and emotional, and it's being defined in lots of different ways. This leads on to my second point, which is about how loneliness is being measured in the literature. So there's not only an issue of conceptualization here, but there's also a lot of difference across um, publications about how they're measuring it. The most <coughs> common measurement of, of loneliness within the psychological literature is the UCLA loneliness scale. This is used across psychological and, and sociological research. And it was devised um, as a 20-item scale initially, and you can see all of the items here. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with psychometrics, usually it involves sitting down and being asked a list of questions like this, and then telling the interviewer or noting down yourself how much you agree with each statement. And then there's a scoring key which allows you to give the person at the end of the day a score on their loneliness. Usually then you can use that score to say you are lonely or you're not lonely. Okay, so it's a way of trying to capture lots of different facets of loneliness altogether. There are state and trait versions of this scale. So you can use this scale to try and capture whether somebody feels lonely right now or whether somebody is, has a tendency to feel lonely across the lifespan. And it's just about the way you ask the questions. Do you always, have you always felt unhappy doing things alone? Have you always felt that you have nobody to talk to? That's how you do it the trait way. Um, a more recent, uh, well, relatively more recent development um, in measuring loneliness has been the dijon Gerbil scale of loneliness um, developed by Jenny dijon Gerbil. And she's developed initially an 11 item and condensed it down to a six item scale. Um, and here it is here, it's a series of statements and the respondent just has to indicate whether they agree yes or no on each statement. This has the advantage of separating scores into a social loneliness score and an emotional loneliness score. So you get scores for both as well as an overall score. As well as using these two scales, a huge number of studies also take the single item approach. And um, this is when you ask somebody, do you feel lonely? And they say yes or no. Okay, so these are a few of the different ways which we try and capture, um, which we've seen um, researchers try to capture this um, within a single item. And it's problematic for a number of reasons. It has its advantages, obviously it's very simple. Um, it doesn't take an awful long time to, um, to get that kind of data. One of the biggest concerns within psychological research is time, especially in epidemiological studies like TILDA or ELSA, where you've just got a certain amount of time with people and you want to fit in as much as possible. 
So trying to condense um, anything into a single item is obviously, you know, uh, resource light. The problem with it is, is that loneliness is a stigmatized condition. And people don't always like to admit to feeling lonely. It's kind of a taboo topic. So asking somebody, do you feel lonely? You're probably going to get an under-report bias because more people are not going to um, respond yes, even if they feel yes, than the other way around. Okay. The problem with all of these different approaches to measuring loneliness then adds a third problem, which is the problem of meta-analysis. And meta-analysis <coughs> is when you take lots of different publications and you put them together to try and find out what is the overall effect of, say, loneliness on health outcomes. Um, Meta-analyses have been conducted in this field. It's still a relatively new field. Meta-analyses usually require that a lot of research has been done on a topic so that you can bring lots and lots of different studies together. So it takes quite a while for, a, for any field in, in medicine or psychology to get to the stage where you can conduct a meaningful meta-analysis. The ones that have been conducted within loneliness do suffer from this problem of you know, heterogeneity of, of measurement, which just means that different measurements are being thrown in together. Some of the studies have used the UCLA scale, some of them have used the Dijon scale, and some of them have used different versions of the single item scales, and other ones there thrown in for good measure too. So what you're seeing there is an effect size calculated on divergent measurements, which means, can you really trust the outcomes of this? The problem here is that basing meta-analyses on inconsistently defined constructs is possibly misleading and possibly not that informative. It's different if you have something that's been highly validated and has very well-defined cut points, well, relatively well-defined cut points, like blood pressure, for instance, because you're not going to argue that much about how it's being measured except for you know, the instrument that's being used. Whereas when we have problems with the definition of loneliness and then further problems with how it's being measured, we throw all of those things in together, it means that the meta-analyses may not be that meaningful for us. The implications that these problems have for the way that we're currently talking about loneliness is really what I'm here to talk about today. If you go to the headlines, this is what you see. You see a huge amount of what I would call panic about loneliness. And so loneliness as the next biggest, the big, next big global health epidemic, the epidemic of loneliness. Loneliness literally hurting your heart. All of these things being um, reported on in, in major newspapers, reputable newspapers. And the problem with this kind of rhetoric is that unless we have the findings to support it, all we're doing is scaring people. And as somebody I interviewed said, um, if I feel lonely and I've been told by the doctors that loneliness is going to kill me, like, what can I do about that? That's actually quite damaging to me. You know, I don't really know where I can go with that. It's a little bit, it's a little bit damaging to somebody to say, you're lonely and this is also killing you. So you feel terrible, but also this is going to be your death. It's not a great message. Um, loneliness has been linked, obviously, in the literature to lots of different um, outcomes, including things like mortality risk, increased blood pressure, coronary heart disease, cardiovascular mortality, accelerated aging, increased, increased risk of dementia and cognitive decline, which are, are separate but related, and things like increased number of GP visits and increased healthcare utilisation. So loneliness is being linked to all of these undesirable outcomes. On the psychological level then as well, it's been linked to increased um, likelihood of developing depression or a depressive disorder and suicidality or suicidal behaviour. So it's being linked to a lot of really negative outcomes. All of these outcomes individually make sense if you read the publication individually and look at how they're defining loneliness and how they're measuring loneliness. But if you bring all of these things together in a meta-analysis, my argument is that, the, that, you know, that the measurement is a little bit meaningless. Um, 
And while loneliness is being linked to all of these terrible outcomes, there is also a related drive to try and intervene. So, going back to that lady who said, you know, I'm being told that I'm lonely and it's killing me, what can I do about it? Obviously, one of the goals of psychological medical research is to try and intervene and try and avoid or, you know, either cure or prevent loneliness when it is happening. And there have been movements towards this, towards either minimizing loneliness or preventing it if it does happen, especially in later life. A lot of the research focus in loneliness has been on, you know, intervening in older adults. That's where most of the focus has been. There's been four main strategies used and this has been described in a, in a, in a review of, of the intervention um, interventions out there. One of them is an intervention to enhance social skills. So that's one type of intervention that we see for loneliness. Is The argument here is saying people who are lonely need their social skills bolstered. Okay, so if we train them in how to integrate socially, then they'll be less lonely as a result. Providing social support for people. So a lot of um, services actually provide peer volunteers who either ring or visit an individual who's feeling lonely um, and use that as a way of um, you know, treating loneliness. Similarly then increasing opportunities for social interactions, suggesting day centres, um, active retirement groups and so, so on and so forth. And then finally addressing maladaptive social cognitions. So maladaptive social cognitions are when we believe things about the people around us that aren't necessarily corroborated by evidence. Okay? So we're believing them in the absence of evidence. So this might be things like everyone out there is out to get me, people out there aren't to be trusted, people out there don't want to interact with me or they don't want me around. So those are maladaptive, okay? So we're not saying that they're always untrue, but we're saying that they're not good for you. It's not good for you to feel like that, it's not getting you anywhere. And we can use cognitive behavioral therapy to try and address some of those maladaptive social cognitions. There's been a lot of disagreement over the right approach to take to treat loneliness, as you probably could have guessed yourselves from the heterogeneity of, of definition out there. A lot of people think that loneliness is a very different thing and therefore obviously they're going to argue about how to treat it. But the bottom line here is that there hasn't been a huge amount of effectiveness in any of these um, interventions. We haven't really settled yet on a way to effectively treat loneliness um, or prevent it. So that's where we are at the moment. Um, well, Here we're saying that there is a wide variation in how we're defining loneliness, wide variation in how we're measuring it. Despite this, we're seeing widely reported, um, uh, we're seeing wide reports of all of the detrimental effects of loneliness, all the terrible things that it's linked to and the terrible things that it does. So what can we do next? And I'd love to Sheldon Cohen here for a bit of advice. Sheldon Cohen is a huge figure in the social sciences um, and he's based in Carnegie Mellon, he's still research active, and he says, he talks about clarity in his research. He actually focused on social support in most of his research, and he's responsible for what we know, a lot of what we know now, about how increased social support can help us to um, protect our health. And what he says is that social support is often used in a broad sense, referring to any process through which social relationships might promote, promote health and well-being. Everything gets lumped in together. And I argue that loneliness is also lumped in together with these things. So when we talk about isolation, social support, loneliness, social engagement, social activities, we're kind of using them interchangeably and we're saying that they're all the same thing. And similarly, a recent meta-analysis by Julianne Holt-Lundstadt, who's looking at similar stuff, is saying, is saying that the literature has become unwieldy, with wide variation in how social relationships are measured. And social relationships themselves have become perhaps a fuzzy variable. So they're not well defined. We, don't really, we haven't really agreed on what we're talking about when we're talking about social relationships, according to Julianne. 
And I would argue that this holds for loneliness as well, that we don't have a lot of conceptual clarity around loneliness. <coughs> so I put forward that qualitative research is one way, one empirical way of moving the argument forward and trying to get a bit of a better definition of loneliness. Qualitative research just involves talking to people <coughs> about what they feel about a particular subject. So something like loneliness, instead of using those scales that I showed earlier, you might sit down for an hour with somebody and talk to them about what they think loneliness is. And this gives us really rich data. We get a huge amount out of that data and we use a more inductive approach. So going from the data up, going from the data up into a theory, into a description of what the concept of loneliness is. And this has been used in the literature before. So Dahlberg and colleagues in a Scandinavian sample used a phenomenological approach which involves talking to people about their experiences and how they perceive the world. And what they found was that loneliness is something that arises out of feeling different to other people. Mm -hmm. So if there's something about an individual that marks them as different, then loneliness is the, is the natural product of that. That's corroborated or backed up by a lot of the quantitative research in this field, which shows that loneliness actually differs as a matter of the country that you're from. Scandinavian countries, older adults in Scandinavian countries, typically report far le lower levels of loneliness than older adults in the Mediterranean countries. And the theoretical argument for this goes something like, if you live in a Scandinavian country, it's typically more individualistic, or supposed to be, so that living on your own is not that big a deal. Whereas living in Mediterranean countries, living alone is a big deal, because they're much more familistic, they're much more um, oriented towards the group, towards the family. So living on your own in a Mediterranean country is actually an anomaly, whereas living on your own in a Scandinavian country is not. So loneliness levels, as a result, are much higher in Mediterranean countries than they are in Scandinavian countries. Another similar study was far more simple with its approach. It just said to people, please describe your loneliness, your loneliest experience. And they used what's called a content analysis, so a very quick kind of, you know, um, sift through the data to see the words that people were using when they were describing loneliness. And they came up with these ideas, alienation, interpersonal isolation, distressed reactions and agony. So they're really describing here self-alienation, that it's the individual that does it to themselves in a way, that somebody can exacerbate their own levels of loneliness, and interpersonal isolation, so isolation from other people. As well as that, there's the subjective kind of pain of loneliness, those distressed distress reactions in the agony. Apart from these three studies, I couldn't really find a huge amount of other research specifically looking at a concept of loneliness, asking people, what do you think loneliness is? So we went to um, a group who had self-identified as isolated, and this was in collaboration with a service in County Donegal called the Good Morning Service. In Donegal, I'm sure most of you are aware, the population is sparse, 161,000, that's the 2011 census, and 72% of that population are rural dwellers. Okay, it's a huge population of rural dwellers. The Good Morning Service was established in 2005 with backing from the Health Service Executive, and initially it was based in Bunkrana, um, sort of at the, at the gateway to, to the Inishon Peninsula, and it served the Inishon Peninsula. And what the service does is phone people. So people can opt into the service, people who are self-identifying as isolated, um, usually people over 60, but they do make some exceptions, and they just receive a phone call as frequently as they wish, and it's like a check-in. They can either choose to have an hour-long conversation with the individual, or they can just say, I'm fine for today, thank you for checking, and, and leave it at that. 
Our research question going up to these participants was, how do these rural self-identifying and socially isolated older adults conceptualise loneliness? And could this have implications for our understanding of the link between culture and loneliness? That was our initial idea when we went up. We wanted to see these people are living in a very high, very defined culture that's very different to the one that we live in. We want to see how they're conceptualising loneliness. We used an interpretative phenomenological analysis approach, and here we are with some of the volunteers that run the, uh, the service group. Everyone is very willing to talk to us. This methodology assumes that people are naturally reflective about their experiences, that the individual makes sense of their own life, and we can tap into that as researchers and interpret it in order to create a better understanding of their phenomenology. When I use the word phenomenology, I mean their lived experience as they see it, things as they see it, which differs very much from a different definition that I'll talk about in a bit. This IPA approach, this phenomenological approach, is advocated if your goal is to describe a complex phenomenon. And um, I'm hoping that I've argued here that loneliness is very much a complex phenomenon that people will have different takes on. We use semi-structured interviews, which means that we went in with a few questions, but we kind of followed people where they wanted to bring the conversation. Um, we, can, we recruited via the, the Good Morning service using convenient sampling, which is kind of appropriate for this type of uh, research. And we interviewed 13 individuals. They were all homeowners. Um, they were all either widowed, divorced, or single. They weren't all living on their own. Some of them were living with um, adult children. And generally, their health was poor. Okay, So across the board, except I think in one case, their health was quite poor. And they were self-identifying as isolated. And they'd been in receipt of the Good Morning service for at least a year. Okay, so we've been receiving these phone calls for at least a year. It's been up and running now for 11 years. When we did the study, it was up and running for 10 years, and some of them had actually been involved from the very start. So they had these wonderful, deep relationships with the, with the volunteers who ran it. Our data analysis that we used, this is what, um, <laughs> this is what qualitative data analysis looks like for those, those of you who haven't seen it before. Um, it's very colourful and <laughs> can be quite fun. And it usually involves extracting themes from the data, grouping the themes together, and trying to pull out kind of um, superordinate themes that we can talk about from the data. So the superordinate themes, we've got categories. These are on the left here. We talked about, we, when, we, when we looked at the data, we realized that people mostly talked about causes of loneliness, loneliness in a social context, and solutions to loneliness. How do you fix it? The themes within these, then I'll go through a few of them. I probably don't have time to go through all of them in detail, but I'll skip through some highlights. That's OK. Um, People did talk about loneliness as being a personality trait. Our structured question was, what do you think loneliness is, and where do you think it comes from? So that's what people were given, and this is what they responded with. Um, one lady said, well, some people are just more inclined to be lonely, more lonely than others. So she's saying here, loneliness is really a personality trait. So my interpretation of that is, is allowed within the interpretative phenomenological analysis framework that I'm kind of reading into what she's saying a little bit, and trying to break it down a little bit further. So she's saying, some people you see would be inclined to be more lonely than others. I see that as saying, some people are just more prone. Some people are, they have a personality that leads them to be lonely. It was brought up in relation to ageing by these individuals, um, but not that frequently, actually. Um, one person said, loneliness is something maybe when you get old and get, I'm not as active as I used to be, you don't get out as much, you feel it more. And, and this man is not saying, I am lonely because I am older. He's saying, I am older, therefore I'm not getting out as much as I used to because my, my personal health doesn't allow it, and that's leading me to be lonely. So it's events that come along with ageing that seem to um, predict loneliness. 
place was talked about a lot by these individuals. So they were all rural. We went in stupidly assuming that they would say, well, I'm lonely because I live rurally, because there's nobody around me. Actually, what we found was the exact opposite. They felt that rural living was community-spirited, that people cared about each other. Um, this lady said, I'm just saying, there's no place as lonely as a town. Cars going flying past, but they've forgotten about you. Not one would come in and say, how are you doing? So she thinks the opposite. She thinks urban living is, is, is lonely. And that was echoed by most of the participants that we spoke to. Loneliness was also described as being related to boredom or activity, which is something that we completely did not expect. When we said to people, you know, do you feel lonely? Where do you think loneliness comes from? We said things like, I don't feel a bit lonely myself because, as I say to you, I find the time passing without any problem doing these puzzle books and happy as I reading. Um, another woman said, I do know people get lonely, surely, and then again people would tell you even they feel lonely. You wonder what they feel lonely about, they're just bored, I think. Okay, so this woman was lucky enough to have never experienced lonely, loneliness before, and she thought it was just boredom. And that did come up a lot. People said, it's not, yeah, I don't get bored. I have things to do, so I don't get lonely. So that was a totally different concept, conceptualization of loneliness to what we expected. Another one that we didn't expect was security. So loneliness was linked to personal security and safety. And we heard things like, no, I wouldn't really be lonely. The only thing I'd be afraid of now is when I hear about all these break-ins. Mm -hmm. So they were hearing loneliness, but I think they were, they were thinking aloneness, you know, isolation more so than, than loneliness. Um, loneliness wasn't always discussed in relation to other people, and more often than not, it wasn't. So people talked about it in relation to boredom, security, activity, age, and then every so often they talked about it in relation to other people. So in relation to living alone, some people said, one woman said, when I get up in the morning, it's very lonely because there's nobody here but myself. So she's saying, I'm lonely because of the absence of others. Um, but this wasn't actually commented upon by that many individuals. And only two out of 13 actually related their loneliness to social isolation as such. So one woman said, well, I'm fine when I'm chatting to other people. In interpreting that, then we moved back and we said, well, if she's fine when she's talking to other people, then she feels lonely when she's not. Um, so obviously for her, it's about isolation. Um, Loneliness was also related to shame. So people said that they didn't really want to talk about loneliness, or maybe it was an experience that people wouldn't want to admit to. And this was more often than not described as something other people might feel. So usually this was couched as, well, I don't feel lonely. I think other people feel lonely, but they don't want to talk about it. So that would lead us to kind of think, okay, there is a shame here, which could lead to an underreport bias. Um, so one person came out and said, I know people that are lonely and they won't admit it. I have a friend who won't admit that he is lonely. We talked about some solutions to loneliness. Uh, the first one was chatting. So people said, well, I don't feel lonely. I just chat to people and I feel okay. Um, my daughter, she rings me maybe twice a day, so I don't feel lonely, no. And faith was brought up by three of our 13 participants as an antidote to, to loneliness. So one person said, I don't feel a bit lonely, thanks be to God. One of my reasons for that is because I have the Catholic faith and I trust in the Sacred Heart and Our Lady to, to look after me, and they do. So that was a great sense of connection for these people. They didn't feel lonely because they felt a presence with them. Um, the conclusions that we drew from this was that the findings are not consistent with previous literature. We did throw up some things here that haven't been previously reported on in the literature, like linking loneliness to feelings of security, to feelings of activity, safety, and boredom. And also there was a hint here that self-reports of loneliness may be biased because it's stigmatised. So that's it for the empirical side of things. But that's not all that we can do in order to clarify a concept. 
Um, so this is very old debate whether we should be, you know, arriving at truths versus through empiricism, through searching out the facts, or through thinking things through through rationalism. And I'm I'm, I'm arguing here that we, we, we obviously need both. Um, and, and methods like existential phenomenology can be helpful in from the rationalist perspective, from trying to help develop a theoretical account of a phenomenon. So it's all very well for me as an empiricist to go out and collect all this data and write it up and say, this is what we're describing. But conceptual clarification can also come from rational argument and from conceptual clarification in other disciplines. So we're calling in the philosophers on this project and we're saying that we need to work together in order to really arrive at a clarification of this concept. Um, the way in which philosophy uses the word phenomenology is incidentally completely different to the way that psychologists use phenomenology. Um, I'm working currently um, with, a, um, with a woman who, who, was, who was here with us, uh, Luna Dolezal, and now she's in Exeter, University of Exeter. Um, we're working together on, a, on developing a new project, and that was one of the first problems that we came across was this problem of translation. Uh, I was using phenomenology in a psychological manner, which just means it's a person's lived experience. She was using it in a completely different way, and she meant it's the essential structures of experience, what you can kind of whittle something down into that's common across individuals. We're working together in a new project um, to develop a conceptual clarification around belongingness. And where loneliness slots into this is our initial discussions and work have been talking about are loneliness and belongingness actually opposites, or how are they related? Is belongingness an antidote to loneliness? Is the absence of belongingness in fact loneliness? So we're working together, um, I'll be working on the empirical side, interviewing people about how they feel about belongingness, what they think it is, and using a slightly more in-depth, certainly much longer interview method um, called existential phenomenology and the existential interview, um, which involves going back to individuals again and again and again and really trying to understand their conceptualization, their phenomenon, phenomenology of, of loneliness and of belongingness. And I argue that if we really go for a transdisciplinary understanding, by which I mean Luna's a philosopher, I'm a psychologist, and if we really get to the point where we're speaking the same language and try and develop a concept together, this could have a lot of um, implications for the public health sector. It could have implications for how we theorise about loneliness, sure, but it could also determine how best to treat loneliness, when to intervene, and how to intervene. As well as this, we're also working on another project that will be interviewing uh, service users from the Good Morning Service, which is now integrated into ALONE, which is a non-governmental organisation um, working in the island of Ireland. And what they've done is they've created a befriendly network of services like the Good Morning Service that interact with individuals and give them these uh, listening services, befriending services, telephone services, and we'll be expanding our loneliness interviewing um, through these individuals with, uh, work by working with Alone hopefully in the new year. We're using a mixed methodological approach here, so we'll be using both quantitative measurements and also interviews in order to uh, provide some empirical uh, data. So that's everything that I've come here to say today. Um, hopefully you can see that I'm trying to offer a way forward out of the, the kind of muddiness where we are currently with loneliness and how we're defining it. And I'd just like to thank some of my colleagues, um, Dr. Peter Hannigan and Professor Brian Lawler, who were involved in the uh, qualitative work that I've done. I have some lay reports with me, just some descriptions of the study um, findings, if anybody would like one. I have some here if you want to take them away, I can bring them out. 
Um, and obviously the staff and the clients and the volunteers at the Good Morning Service, most importantly as well, and Luna, uh, who isn't here today. Okay, thank you very much.